Well, amen, huh? Isn't it tremendous, our Christ, our Savior, our solid rock? Take your Bible and uh, open up to uh, Matthew chapter 2. Good evening. I'm uh, thankful that you're here. <laughs> we can meet together around God's Word. Matthew chapter 2 is where we're going to begin. Verse 1 says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, the Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king uh, heard it, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. As you know, we've been excuse me, uh, looking at... Uh, the greatest event that's ever happened in, in, in human history, that being uh, God uh, becoming a man. And we've doing it, been doing it in a chronological fashion for quite a number of weeks now, uh, and we've not said all that we could say about uh, the issue, but we're going to at least bring this uh, look at the uh, birth of the Savior to a conclusion tonight, Lord willing. Uh, we began in eternity past. We've come now to the place where the Savior's been born. Uh, he has uh, come. Uh, his coming has been announced by... Uh, Angels heralded to men. Remember, uh, the men were out in the field, the shepherds keeping watch over their flock, and God's peace was announced to them, heralded to them. Uh, God's peace was going to come to men through this uh, most unique child. We've seen this child praised by a remnant, a faithful remnant. We've seen testimony given over and over again uh, concerning this child, that he is indeed the Christ, that he is indeed the Savior the one whom God has promised to send into the world, uh, the one who's promised to send into the world out of his love, his mercy to deal with the issue of man's sin, uh, the separation that has occurred because of that sin, and, and then to bring reconciliation. Of course, it's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And in all of our studies together, we've been seeing testimony, again, a variety of different sources of testimony to who this child is, that he really is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who has the right to rule, the one who deserves to be worshipped by all men, because he's God come in the flesh, he is a tangible demonstration of God's love, a tangible demonstration uh, of God's mercy to sinful men that if they would repent and place their faith upon his son, that they would be saved from the judgment to come in his wrath and that he again would be reconciled. Now, last time we started into chapter 2 here in the book of Matthew, and we didn't get much further than what I just read to you at the top. Uh, we didn't even finish all there was to see in those uh, three verses. Uh, we introduced Herod. Uh, then we uh, looked at a group of guys called the Magi, the Gentile kingmakers, uh, who have been sent by God to do what the nation of Israel will not do. That is to give proper recognition, proper honor, proper worship uh, to the King of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Matthew's purpose in writing his uh, gospel account is to prove that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the King of the Jews. He is the true, legitimate uh, 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 King, again, the one who has the right and the privilege to sit upon David's throne. Chapter 1, he lays out Matthew's, uh, or Matthew lays out Christ's royal lineage. Uh, chapter 2, Jesus receives the royal honor that he deserves. And again, it doesn't come from his own people, the nation of Israel. It comes from some Gentiles who've traveled quite a distance uh, afar to come to worship him. And they are part, as I told you, the, the first fruit of the Gentile nations. God, through uh, Abraham, promised mercy to the nations. And uh, they're part of that first fruit, the Gentile seed that will come uh, from, or the Gentile fruit that will come from the seed that comes from the person of Abraham himself, again, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's just kind of do a little quick review, and we'll hit the road running here. 
Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, a magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Now remember I told you there's a time interval here at the birth of Christ. Between chapter 1 and chapter 2, some time has elapsed since the shepherds uh, have arrived to see the infant in the, uh, uh, the stable. And then eight days later, after Joseph and Mary take their infant son, their child, to the temple uh, in accordance to the law. It's interesting in the Luke's version, Luke chapter 2, verse 12, says this will be a sign for you and you'll find a baby uh, the word there in the lion in a manger uh, the word there is brephos which means newborn child in verse 8 here there's a reference to a child or the child that's a different word pation which means a young child so again it's just pointing out the fact that uh, so there's some time here that has elapsed sometime after the shepherd sometime after the temple sometime before the birth or, or the sometime before the death of herod and, and again all that's to say um, take your uh, uh, wise men away from your manger scenes because they're not there. Right? They're not there at the manger. They come later. Now, Jesus, he was born in Bethlehem of Judea, the text says. Again, it's just a small and significant town, five or six miles south of uh, Jerusalem, the capital city. Uh, the village has a long history in the nation of Israel, but most notably, it's known as the city of David. This is where David, uh, the king, was born, and here prophesied would be one who would come after him to sit on his throne forever, the Messiah, the King of Israel. It says after uh, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the days of uh, uh, in Judea, uh, Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod. Now we talked about Herod a lot last time. Great links about him. Uh, he was known as Herod the Great. He wasn't a Jewish member. He was an Edomite. Uh, Julius Caesar had appointed his father Antipater uh, to be the governor over Jerusalem, Judea. Forty. 7 BC, uh, 47 B.C., the Romans appoint Herod as the governor over Galilee. Uh, as I told you, to say the least, uh, Herod's an interesting uh, individual. Uh, he's a very capable man, a very culling, cunning man. He's a political genius. Uh, he has entrusted himself to the Romans. He's a great builder. He's restored many cities, built seaports. Uh, he started cr- construction on the Herodian temple, and he builds the uh, fortress at Masada and so on. He leveled heavy taxes against his people and was uh, very able at collecting them, which is obviously something Rome was uh, very much appreciative of. Uh, But at times he could be very generous. He would at times suspend tax collection. Uh, During tough times, he even melted down at one point in history, even melted down his own gold plates to buy corn for starving people during times of drought and famine. But I told you the one thing above all things that stood out about the man Herod is that he is in the truest sense of the word, a maniac. He is insanely murderous. Uh, He's a cruel individual. He has an insatiable lust for power. And the position that he held as, quote, king of the Jews, that's the title that the Romans gave him in 40 B.C. Now, Herod murdered anybody and everybody who got in his way, including, I told you, his uh, uh, wife, uh, her mother, his brother-in-law, the high priest, and then three of his own sons. And right before he died, when he knew that he was dying, he gave that edict that, uh, that he would have a, uh, to his men that all the most distinguished citizens of Jerusalem would be rounded up and imprisoned uh, in order that they would be executed the moment that he died because he said he was well aware of the fact that nobody would mourn for him when he died and he wanted to make sure that there were some tears shed in Jerusalem upon his death. So this is the madman king uh, that has been appointed uh, by the Romans to that position. He's the ruler over this area. He's an earthly king, a vassal king, meaning he's uh, not really a king. He's just subject to rulers above him. But he has limited powers, he's a usurper to the throne, and he's a usurper to the title that he is claiming as the king of the Jews. 
And he's the one who the Magi meet when they come into town, when they come from the east. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, then days of Herod the king, behold, the Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And we talked about these guys extensively last time also. So I'm not going to go over all of that material. But let me just remind you just a bit who these guys are, the Magi or the wise men. Remember, they're basically a tribe of people, uh, members of an Eastern priestly uh, group of people uh, originally associated with the Medes and Persians. Some have suggested even that they were Semites, which means they came from the same group of the, uh, that the Jews and Arabs would come from, that they were perhaps descendants of Noah's son Shem. So probably, perhaps, uh, they come from the same, the Magi come from the same ancient area that Abraham came from, Ur of the Chaldees. Some of our translations before you say wise men, others say magi. Uh, we would get in the English uh, magician or magic from that kind of an idea. Remember I said magi really is a word that's untranslatable. It's not a translatable word. It's just a word that refers again to this priestly tribe of people. Uh, they were skilled in astronomy and astrology. And in those days, uh, these two were kind of closely linked together. They're involved in various occultic practices, including sorcery. But perhaps they're best well known for their ability to interpret dreams. They're skilled scientists of their day, teachers, physicians, mathematicians, skilled in agriculture, history, etc., and so forth. These uh, Oriental wise men rose to a place of prominence, especially in Babylon, under the rulership of Nebuchadnezzar. And the position of prominence was held by the, the Magi, by this group of people in the Persian culture, all the way up and even into uh, the New Testament time period. And because of their wisdom, because of their knowledge, because of their intuition, their occultic ability, etc., and so forth, these men were elevated to uh, the place of official advisors to the king. And in fact, they were so powerful uh, politically, uh, history says that a person could not even come to the uh, Oriental throne unless they had sat underneath the teaching of this group of individuals, unless they'd mastered the teaching, the religious disciplines, the scientific things that they were teaching them, etc., and so forth. So these guys not only give advice to the king, uh, these guys really raise up the king, they, the, the next king. They raise him up, they train him up, and they were the ones who are identified to uh, pick, identified and qualified to set the next king upon the throne of the Persian Empire. So very, uh, in a very real sense, that's why they're known as the kingmakers, uh, because that's what they did. Now, in this point in their history, uh, this tribe of people, the, the Magi, they come in contact with, uh, again, or at a point in history back in the time of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, they come in contact with a godly man named Daniel. And Daniel is a man whom God has given extraordinary wisdom and insight to. You remember in 586 uh, B.C., Ju Judah was carried off into captivity, and Daniel was carried off with them. And it's during Nebuchadnezzar's reign that, and his interaction with Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar elevates Daniel. Daniel chapter 2, verse 48 says, The king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. And here it is chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And, and we went through all that last time. Uh, the point was that God had uh, ordained and placed this godly man, Daniel, in a position where he could influence uh, these pagan Gentiles and then had him appointed chief of the Magi, chief of the magicians, the Chaldeans, the diviners, as it says in Daniel chapter 4. So in this unique position as one who is completely devoted uh, to God because of Daniel's high position, because of Daniel's great uh, respect, it seems certain that he was the one who passed on the information to this priestly group of people in their history of the truth about the one true and the living God, the God of Israel, and about his will, about his plans for his people, and about the coming one day of a great and glorious king. 
So these people, the, the Magi, were affected, infected, whichever word or both you'd like to use, by the truth, and by Daniel, by his influence, by the influence of other faithful Jewish individuals who were also carried off into captivity. So their, their uh, um, interaction with this, grusly, uh, this uh, priestly group of individuals, again, put within their culture uh, an understanding, a knowledge that one day there was coming a, a Messiah, one day there was coming a king. And 600 years later, at the time that we're looking at in the book of Matthew, when the king shows up, there's still people from this priestly line that still have this hope, that still have this expectation. They've come and they've found their way to the house uh, where the child was. Now, remember something else is very significant, and I told you that was going on in the background uh, here in uh, Matthew's story. For some reason, uh, even acknowledged by Roman historians, uh, there was a belief at the time that there was a man who was going to come uh, out of Judea. Uh, who would come and rule the whole world. There was kind of an electric expectation among all men that from Judea one would come and uh, obtain dominion. A great leader, a world ruler, one who would be the governor of all the inhabited earth, one who would acquire a, a universal empire. So all this is going on, right? And again, it says here, uh, in the days of Herod, Matthew writes, Behold, the Magi come. And I told you, Mag the, when, when Matthew uses the word behold, He's trying to give you a little bit of the wow factor. He's trying to give you a little bit of the intensity of the shock, the magnitude of these guys rolling into town. Uh, these oriental kingmakers in town at this time with all the expectation that is going on is a big deal. And again, I told you when the, when the Magi come, there's not just three of them on dusty old dead dying camels. There's probably a lot of them. They're, they're probably escorted by the Persian cavalry. They're probably mounted on horseback. So it's an impressive sight, these men coming dressed up in royal regalia uh, with, uh, 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 escorted by the Persian cavalry. Behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, and they kept saying, the, the verb tense means they just kept repeatedly going everywhere, again, not just asking one, not just asking one person, but repeatedly, numerous people asking the same question, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? Now, in the context, I told you, I don't think they're looking for a political leader because I think these people are God-fearing, uh, genuine, sinking Gentiles. They're not looking for a political leader, but they're looking for the king. They're looking for the savior. Uh, the Magi from the east have arrived, and they said they want to find the one who's been born king of the Jews, and later they said they want to do that so they can worship him. Now, they've come to worship, but Herod doesn't know that. All Herod sees is the real threat that apparently is before him. And you can imagine, I think, the surprise with the Magi who are so excited about the birth of the king and they show up and the people of Israel could care less. I mean, this is the most monumental moment in human history. God has come into the world. God has become incarnate. You would have expected there would be the greatest celebration possible that would take place. You would have thought that all the princes of the world, all the peoples of the world would have come before him and worshipped him and acknowledged him and bowed before him and thanked him and adored him and expressed their love to him. Why? Well, why has he been sent in the world? He's been sent into the world out of the love of the Father for mankind, for rebellious mankind. He's been sent into the world out of the love for the Father for the express purpose to save, for the express purpose to stand, to stand in the sinner's place so that sinners won't have to face the wrath of God so that they might escape eternal punishment, so that they might know forgiveness of sin, newness of life, and a reconciled relationship with God. You would have thought that somebody coming into the world with that much love would elicit a great outpouring of love in return, a great response. 
But that's not what happened, right? That's not what happened then. That's not what happens in our day. Just like then, most people now could care less about the person of Jesus Christ. Now, the Jewish religious leaders at the time, they're going to miss the most monumental events that's ever taking place in human history, and it's happening literally right in their backyard. They're not just going to miss it, but they're going to do what? Outright reject it. You were unwilling to come to me, right? Like I said this morning, they're just not interested. And that's the theme that runs, uh, again, through the book of Matthew, a theme that runs through really uh, all the gospel accounts, right? The rejection of the person of Jesus Christ, not only by the religious leaders of Israel, but by everybody. The vast majority of the world is either completely indifferent or could care less about the fact that God has become a man, or they react with hatred, they react with hostility, all the way to the point of murderous hate. Very few understand who he is, very few understand why he's come, and very few will stop and bow before him and worship and adore him and praise him and love him for who he is. But the Magi know who he is, and they've come to worship him. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, the Magi from the east. Uh, the word there literally means from the rising of the sun, right? From the east. So it really refers to the Orient. Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. So what is it with the star? Well, if you look at the text, it's mentioned four times very quickly and just in the next few verses. Now, we're not told exactly how the Magi knew that the king was been born, but only that God gave them a sign. We saw his sign. We saw the king's star in the east. So what is it? Well, as you would imagine, the commentators are all over the place on this one. Some say it's a real star. Some say it's a real star like you put on your Christmas tree, and then they argue over whether or not it was five-sided or six-sided. Kid you not. Liberal theologians think the whole thing is made up, Therefore, it's just merely a mythical account, parallel with other mythical accounts from other worldly religions. Most think it was a real star in the sense of an astral body in the heavens. Some say it was a meteor. A meteor. Some say it was a comet. Some say it was a constellation. Some would say it was a stella nova, a sudden appearance of, the, uh, of a new star, perhaps in conjunction with Jupiter and Saturn. Did you hear the talk here this last Christmas? The stars are aligning. Oh, this is the Christmas star, right? Got all these planets in the same place. No, no, it's not. Just some planets aligning, not the Christmas star. Some consider it a, a real star with the supernatural characteristics. Some say, and this is my favorite one, some say the star was, quote-unquote, the destiny in the hearts of mankind. That's a good one, whatever that means. Destiny in the heart of mankind. I guess you have to fill up the space on the page when you're writing a book, right? Now, the word star is astir, uh, or astron. It, uh, 28 times that the word appears in the New Testament, uh, only five times is it used to describe an ordinary literal star up in the sky, such as in Acts 27, 20, when it's talking about stars aiding uh, for navigation at the sea. Now, there's another theory of the star, why it might be, and it's a uh, I mentioned by a few commentators, probably a minority. I did read several guys who held the position that I'm going to give you, and I lean very hard this direction also. Now, it can't be directly dogmatically uh, um, or completely dogmatic on the star because it, the Bible doesn't tell us what it is or explain the star, but I would go this direction with it. Remember over in Luke chapter 2, verse 9, when the, uh, yeah, the, the, the shepherds were out and staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night? Uh, and an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared and stood before them, and what happened? 
the glory of the Lord showed around them. And they were terribly frightened. So the announcement, at the announcement of the birth of Christ, shepherds saw the glory of the Lord shining around them. In the Old Testament, the concept of the glory of the Lord doesn't really mean God in his essential nature, although God in his essential nature is glorious. But most often, the concept of glory in the Old Testament uh, refers to a manifestation of visible light, the luminous manifestation of his person. His glory is a revelation of himself, and that's true, but the verbs that are often linked with the concept of glory in the Old Testament are seeing verbs, sight verbs. Exodus twenty four seventeen. The, to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. So the concept of glory in, in the Old Testament, God's glory in the Old Testament, is a visible manifestation of his presence. And most often, uh, it is uh, represented in the manifestation of visible light, whether it be a pillar of fire by night or a cloud of light by day. Or like when Moses went up to the mountaintop and God showed him his glory and hid him there in the cleft of the rock. And there was so much glory, so much light on his face. So Moses, uh, when he comes down, he's still glowing, right? After he comes down from the mountaintop. So again, the glory of God in the Old Testament is always blazing light. When you go to the New Testament, remember in Matthew chapter 17, uh, at the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17, 2, Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. When the resurrected Christ uh, comes upon Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, when uh, Paul is retelling that story to King Agrippa, Acts 26, verse 13, Paul said this, At midday, O king... I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining all around me. Have you ever been out midday and looked out in the sun? Can't look at it very long, right? I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining all around me, and those who were journeying with me, and when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. That's who the light was. Jesus, brighter than the noonday sun. The book of Revelation. When John has a vision of the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Revelation 21, verse 23. The city had no need of the sun, nor of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it. And the lamp is the Lamb. So the glory of the Lord is always uh, manifested in light in Scripture as light. One of the Old Testament uh, main words in the Old Testament for star means to shine or to blaze forth. Sometimes it was used to speak of stars, sometimes literal stars in the sky, sometimes the word was used to speak of angels, sometimes of men. But basically the word means anything that shines, anything that shines or or brings forth a blaze in an incredible fashion. In fact, in the book of Numbers, There's a messianic prophecy that goes like this, Numbers 24, verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob, and the scepter shall rise from Israel. So the writer there says there's going to come forth a star from Jacob, a a scepter, a ruler. Uh, There's going to come a star, a blazing forth. There's going to come forth a shining one. Over in the New Testament, Matthew 24, verse 29, immediately after the tribulation, those days the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers of heaven will be shaken, and then there will be a sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. 
So when the Son of Man is about to appear, there's going to be a sign, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and with, remember, great glory. Great glory. So when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, he's going to display himself in great glory. There's going to be a blazing forth, a shining, a glorious light, a manifestation, a visible manifestation of his presence. You go all the way to the end of the New Testament, Revelation 22, verse 16. Jesus says, I've sent my angel to testify to you of these things for the churches. I am the root, the offspring of David, the bright morning star. So the sign that is always connected with the Lord Jesus Christ is the great glorious light, light like the sun, light shining in its full strength, brighter than the midday. The sign of the Lord Jesus is his blazing forth, his Shekinah glory. Uh, Hebrews 1, 3. Who is Jesus? He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten. Well, when did you see that, John? Well, again, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Who's Jesus? He's God. But, he, you know, God in spirit, but he's also human flesh, right? He's also a physical being. So one day at the moment or one moment there on the Mount of Transfiguration, he pulls back his flesh, as it were, and shows the disciples a glimpse of his glory. So, I don't know, I said to myself, you know, I think I see a pattern here. You know? I think I can fall in line and agree with those com- those commentators who say the star that these magi saw is not a physical, literal, astral star in the sky. It's not a comet. It's not a meteor. It's not the, a stella nova. It, it is a. It's his glory, right? It's his glory. Where where is he? Has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his astar. We saw his shining. We saw his blazing forth. We saw his glory in the east. Who come to worship him? Now the text doesn't tell us how. Just somehow God opened their eyes and the Magi saw the glory of the king. There's no evidence that I can see in the text, like the song, that we really should not get our theology from songs, but westward leaning and all that kind of, right? There's no evidence in the star in the, in the text there that the star continues to shine. There's no evidence in the text that the Magi followed the star from the east to the west or that they were led to Jerusalem. And that's evident by the fact they had to ask, where, where is he? <laughs> Where was he born? It's not until they're told the prophecy of the birthplace of the Messiah in verses 5 and 6 that the, the star reappears and then guides them not only to Bethlehem but to the exact place where the child was, as it says in verse 9. All right, so the glory is shining here, right? And the travelers have come from the east. They come with one purpose, whereas he has been born king of the Jews. For we saw his glory in the east, and we've come to worship him. We've, fall, we've come to fall down before him, called to... We've come to, to kiss the hand. Uh, we've, called, we've come to kneel, to do homage. Something that the Bible says is reserved for God alone. So again, the Magi come. They keep saying all over the place, where is he, where is he? We've come to worship him. We've come to make known the fact that this child is no ordinary child, that he is indeed God incarnate. He's the Messiah. He's the King of Israel. He's a long-awaited promised one from whom uh, God has promised to bless the nations. Whereas he has been born king of the Jews, for we saw a star in the east, we come to worship him. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. I told you that word troubled means agitated. Uh, it really is to strike fear, dread, terror. Uh, Herod's literally shaken. He's shaken up, he's terrified. 
You, you got to understand at this point in history, Herod's, pro- Herod's probably an older man. I was going to say old, but I'm pushing this number. He's probably at least 70 or pretty close to it. Right? So he is an older man, distinguished, I'm sure, well-dressed and a nice gray hair, but that's not in the text either. Right? So he, he's probably a, 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 a little tired. He, he wants to maintain his position of power. He sees these guys show up. Uh, he, he knows he's sitting literally on a political and religious powder keg, if you will. He's right in this middle of this struggle. I tell you, there's a struggle going always between the, the Eastern Empire and Rome, and he's kind of right there in the middle of it. Got this great uh, increased messianic expectations that are going on, and then all of a sudden these powerful men from the East show up. And again, there's probably many of them. They're probably uh, oppress, uh, impressive in appearance. They're, on, they're probably, uh, again, uh, carrying a royal demeanor. And to Herod, they give the impression that there's a threat. There's a direct threat to his throne. The king, Herod, was troubled. The text goes on and says, and all Jerusalem with him, uh, because they know this man's character. Right? They, they knew that he was a maniac. They knew his murderous tendencies. They knew that he would shed blood at uh, just a moment if anyone attempted to usurp his position as the king of the Jews. And, of course, sadly, they are correct. Verse 4 says, Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And the verb tense of the word inquire then means, uh, there means constantly asking. He wants to know. He wants an answer. Herod wants this information, and he knows where to go to get this information, or at least he thinks he does, so he calls together the official representatives of the Jews, and he repeatedly demands an answer. And the people he calls are the chief priests and the scribes. So who are these guys? You come across these guys, obviously, a number of times in the New Testament, especially in the book of Matthew. I don't want to go into a tremendous amount of uh, detail about them at the moment, but let me just say a little bit about them. The text says, gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes. So most likely, this is the entire Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were the 70 Jewish elders that made up basically the Jewish Senate, uh, the Jewish Supreme Court. And as long as these fellows didn't interfere with the Romans and the Roman government, they had the right to pass decisions. They had ultimate authority over religious, civil, criminal matters amongst the Jews. So they're the ones who made up the, the, the laws. They're the ones who upheld the laws in the Jewish society. They made all the decisions in the Jewish courts. And they're both a political and a theological uh, group uh, that literally, again, runs the affairs of the Jewish nation in the theocracy. In Jewish hierarchy, the high priest is the one who went into the temple into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement and made sacrifice for the people. He's basically the president of the Sanhedrin. Now, there's only supposed to be one high priest uh, at the time, but for political reasons at time, uh, different times, different men were taken out of this position and others were put in. In fact, at this time in the New Testament, there are two chief priests. There's a guy named Annas and another guy named Caiaphas. Annas uh, came first and was deposed, and then later came Caiaphas who took his place. So the high priest, the chief priests are considered, uh, or the chief priests consisted of the present ruling high priests and those who were formerly the, had occupied that position and others from uh, the ranks where other high priests were usually chosen. At the time of the New Testament, however, the chief priests in, are, in essence, nothing more than corrupt politicians. That's who these guys are at the moment. And so far from being truly concerned about the spiritual welfare of the nation, they're really concerned about their own political gain. 
and constantly through the book of Matthew, again, starting here in chapter 2, they're going to be in conflict with the person of Jesus Christ. They, they, he, he will be a victim of their plots. He will be a victim of their lies, uh, especially their scheme to uh, have him murdered. So here are these, those guys, the chief priests, and then you have the scribes. Well, who are these guys? Well, well, the scribes are really the experts in Jewish religion. They're the ones who studied. They taught the Word of God. These are the Old Testament biblical scholars. They're the ones who knew every nuance of Old Testament Scripture. Some of them joined the party of the Pharisees. Uh, they were more fundamentalists. They were more uh, literalists, more legalists. Uh, they believe everything that the uh, Old Testament Scripture said. Some of the scribes joined the other party, the Sadducees. Uh, they're more liberal. They denied certain portions of Scripture, such as res- the resurrection and angels. So they wanted to throw out certain portions of the Scripture. So you've got these two groups, the fundamentalists and the liberals. I mean, nothing changes, right? So what Herod does is he calls these men together, all of the chief priests and the scribes, all of the corrupt politicians and the theologians. And he begins to inquire them where the Christ was born. Now, I want you to notice that up to this point, the text has never specifically said that this baby is the Christ, but now here it does. Herod associates the king of the Jews with Messiah, with the Christ. He began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. So again, in this current climate with the Messianic expectations high, most of them were really looking for a political ruler, a political leader, a military deliverer that would take them away from the oppression that they're currently under uh, the Romans rather than a spiritual savior. And again, I think you even see that idea of, uh, of uh, uh, a political ruler, perhaps uh, his own disciples, Jesus' own disciples, Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Is it time for you to restore the kingdom? So there's this time of great expectation. So where is he? Well, according to John chapter 7, verse 42, it was general knowledge that should have been known that when the Christ comes, when the seed of David comes, he will come from Bethlehem. That's common knowledge amongst the people. So Herod calls this group of individuals together and demands to know where is the Christ or where the Christ was to be born, verse 5. And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least amongst the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come one... Come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, it is amazing that the religious leaders know where to look for the answer. They know it's found in the prophet Micah. So by implication, I think Matthew, as he's writing, is beginning to lay out a case against these blind leaders of the blind, these spiritually blind individuals, that somehow seem to know that the Christ is going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea, but they completely miss the event. They're just about five or six miles away. Didn't I say that? And they completely miss the event. They know what the scripture says. They know that people are looking for him and they have no care for him. Now, most certainly, again, in all the stuff that's going on, and this is not a big area, most certainly there had to be some con- uh, conversations swirling about what the shepherds saw and heard when they beheld the glory of the Lord, right? Because at first there was what? One angel that showed up. And then the text there in Luke says there was a multitude of the heavenly angels, or heavenly hosts praising God. Right? So this kind of event, too spectacular to kind of suppress, right? Too spectacular to have been kept silent. So there has to be conversations swirling everywhere about, did you hear what the shepherds saw? So they know where the Messiah is going to be born. They know this information is going on, but somehow they're completely oblivious to the situation. Somehow they seem to care little for the fact that their Messiah is about, that their Messiah has been born. 
because their only concern is their power. Their only concern is Herod. And what is Herod's reaction to this whole situation? So again, they fail in their blindness to grasp the significance of the question asked by the Magi. Right? They simply give forth an answer, where is he? Bethlehem of Judea. Right? That's the city of the king. In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. Again, very familiar phraseology moves many times uh, in the book of Matthew. Uh, for so it has been written. I'm, I'm going to reference that here just in a, in a few moments. Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes, the people began to inquire of them where the chief, or where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, verse 6, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, it's interesting because they don't quote Micah according to the letter. They don't quote him word for word. Micah 5.2 says, As for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Now, Micah is a prophet of judgment. Uh, he prophesies in the days of uh, Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. His prophecies range from about 750, or 735 B.C. to about 710 B.C. He, he delivers a stern message of, of judgment to the princes, to the people of Jerusalem. He's a man who has a burden uh, um, by the abusive treatment of the poor, by, uh, by the rich and the influential. He's a prophet who turns to a verbal rebukes upon anyone who would use their social and political power for personal gain. About a third of the, the book of Micah exposes the sins of his countrymen. About a third pictures the punishment that God is about to send. And the final third heard, holds out hope of restoration after punishment comes, after discipline is ended. And throughout the book of Micah, Micah, Micah keeps setting forth God's righteous standards, God's righteous demands. In Micah 6.8, he has told you, O man, what is good, what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So Micah comes and exposes the sins of Judah, the injustice, and again exalts the righteousness of God. So he sets forth the indictment of Israel and Judah for the specific sins which will bring God's judgment. But then he puts forth one of the clearest, uh, most important of all of the Old Testament messianic prophecies, Micah 5.2. He says, As for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little among the nations, the clans of Judah, um, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one, from you one will go forth to be for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So it's a prophecy about the birthplace of the Eternal One, the Eternal Messiah. And again, it's made seven hundred years before uh, the birth of Christ. So again, gathering together the chief priests, the scribes, the people uh, of the people, he began to inquire them where the Christ is to be born. They said, In Bethlehem of Judea, for just as it has been written by the prophet. You, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler. And then he says, who will shepherd my people Israel? Now the question is, where'd that come from? Because that's not in Micah's text. That's not in, in the original version of uh, Micah 5. Now some have suggested, which I think for a number of reasons probably uh, uh, are valid, we know for sure that this didn't come from the chief priests and the scribes. Right, this little addition, right? Because they also fail when they tell where he's to be born. They fail to mention the fact that the Messiah who's coming, the King who's coming, is an eternal one. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And they certainly wouldn't be looking for or promoting anyone who could take their place as the leader or the rulers of Israel, who were supposedly. I mean, what were these guys doing? The religious leaders weren't they supposed to be the caring ones? Weren't they supposed to be the shepherds? 
caring for the needs of the people. So who put that little phrase in there? Who will shepherd my people Israel? Some have suggested maybe Matthew, the author of the book, put it in there. That's a completely acceptable answer because he too is an inspired writer. Writes under the direction of the Holy Spirit and God is revealing through Matthew that uh, there's not only a coming ruler, a governor out of Bethlehem, but there's going to be one who's going to be a shepherd, the shepherd of God's people. Some believe it's a direct reference out of 2 Samuel 5.2 where the Lord, uh, speaking to David, said, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will be a ruler over Israel. And the idea there would be that Matthew's now applying that text out of 2 Samuel, again, under the direction of the Holy Spirit to David's greater son, uh, the Messiah, uh, the King of Israel. It's also a possibility that this addition could be a reference to what Micah says just a couple of verses later in Micah 5, uh, 5 verse 4, uh, speaking of the coming ruler, he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord God. Wherever it comes from, uh, it wasn't there in the original, but most definitely it's the Holy Spirit saying you need to understand that this ruler comes. He's not just coming in power. This one has been, been, been predicted a long time ago. He is a great king. He is the Messiah. He's going to come and rule, and he's going to rule again in the line of his famous ancestor David, but he's not going to be a ruler or a governor over the people like the one who is currently in place. He's going to be a shepherd. He's not going to be like the usurper that's now sitting on David's throne. He's not going to be cruel. He's not going to be a maniac. He's not going to be a murderous tyrant. The true king of Israel, when he comes, he's going to have strong sympathy for his people. And they're going to really love him because he's going to really love them. He's going to care for them. He's going to watch over him. Remember a few weeks back we were talking about um, uh, uh, um, the covenants, the Abrahamic covenant? And if you get nothing out of what, what it's, it's a, it's a covenant of God's mercy. Right? God calls this guy out of Ur of the Chaldees. He promises to bless him. He promises that through him all the nations are going to be blessed. The God of the Bible is a God of mercy. Did I say that this morning? That this is the time of mercy? This is the day of grace? God has a desire that men would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth and not face him and his wrath. That's why he sent Jesus Christ into the world. Look, wrath is coming. He'll take care of that. But our proclamation to the people around us, so again, set in blindness, and again, a lot of them are rejecting the truth, is to take mercy before it's uh, pulled back. God is a merciful God. The true king of the Jews, when he comes, he's going to be a real shepherd. He's going to love his people. He's going to care for his people. He's going to watch over his people. And you're familiar with it too, just as, as well as I am. In the Old Testament, uh, the Lord is often spoken as the shepherd. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me. He doesn't whip at me. He doesn't beat me with a stick. He guides me to paths of righteousness for his namesake. Isaiah 40 and 11, like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. His arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead nursing ewes. That's the God of the Bible, a merciful shepherd. Now, of course, in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ is often spoken of many times as a shepherd. Spoken of, Jesus is spoken of as a shepherd, the good shepherd in John chapter 10, verse 14. The chief shepherd, 1 Peter 5, 4. The great shepherd, uh, Hebrews 13, 20, and the uh, one shepherd, John 10, verse 16. 
And you, Bethlehem, land of Judea, or Judah, by no means are least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you will come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Well, there's a king coming from this little village. When he comes, he's going to be completely unlike the current king that you have. He's going to be completely like, unlike the false shepherds who are currently over you. It's sad to say there's a lot of false shepherds in the church today or in the professing church today. There's a lot of false shepherds. Don't take you to the truth. They take you away from the truth. A lot of false shepherds that allow the theologies, the false theologies of the world in through the front door, try to put some kind of Christian veneer over the top of it and say this is helpful and it's not helpful. Only God's word is helpful. Only those people who take you to the person of Jesus Christ, only those people who take you to the word of God should be listened to. Anybody that tries to bring in worldly philosophies and say that the world that the church has to adopt or adapt to, adopt or adapt to the philosophies of the world in order that we might become relevant, you need to run from those people as fast as you can. They are lying to you. The true shepherd takes us to Christ. The true shepherd takes us to God. The true shepherd has a love for his people, a caring for his people. A true shepherd looks out for your best interests. And true shepherds in the church take you to the word of God because they know they don't have anything to offer you other than the word of God. They don't have anything that can help other than a greater understanding on your part and their part of the person of Jesus Christ and for us all to fall in greater love with the person of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that's going to solve the problems. The character of this shepherd that God promises to send here, he's going to come because, again, he's God come in the flesh. He's going to be a marked contrast to those who are currently ruling over the nation of Israel. That's why, we don't know who exactly wrote it in there, but we know the Holy Spirit made sure it got in there because he wanted you to know who the shepherd king is when he comes. Verse 7 says, Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time that the star appeared. He's going to have a private meeting with these guys. He wants to make sure that, as best as possible, suspicions aren't uh, aroused. And they certainly would be if he has another public meeting with them. Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. Ascertain, he wants to know accurately, is what the word means. He wants to investigate diligently. He wants the exact time. So he commanded these men that would come before him. They summoned them together and determined from them the time the glory showed up, the shining showed up, right? The time it appeared, the time that they saw this bright, glorious splendor. So Herod is asking these men, tell me exactly when it happened. When did this blazing forth light up? When did the shining appear? Again, very much suggesting the fact that the, uh, they saw something at a specific time. Now, I said before, the, uh, the glory of the Lord appeared at his birth. So if the glory of the Lord appeared at the birth of Christ to the shepherds in the field... Why couldn't God at the same time, at the same instance, display the, display the same glory to the people who are off in the east, the Magi? Right? The one whom he has appointed divinely to come and to affirm that Jesus is indeed the, the king of the Jews. So Herod wants to know the exact time that they see the supernatural event take place. Not for the same reason that they have. He's a murderous maniac, right? He's a murderous hypocrite. He's a, he's a cunning conceiver. He, he uh, conceals the real motivation for finding the child. He wants to destroy the child. He wants to find the child so he can kill him, so he can murder him. He wants to do away with any kind of potential rival. 
So therefore, he already knows the place. Now he wants to know the exact time of this supernatural phenomenon so that he might be able to reasonably guess an appropriate age of the child. Now, we don't know exactly what the Magi told him, but he must have gathered enough information because verse 16 says that he murdered all of the children two years old and under according to the time which he had ascertained from the Magi. So he must have figured out and would have gotten that child if he took care of all of these uh, children. Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared, but before he uh, resorts to the slaughter of the children, verse 8 says, then he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make careful search for the child. And when you found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. Uh, Again, it's the height of hypocrisy. Herod has absolutely no intention of coming and worshiping him. He wants the child found so he can murder him, wants to destroy him. The one born king of the Jews, where is he? Where was he born? When did he see it? When was he? Go find the place where he lives. Go to Bethlehem. Make careful search of the child. And when you found him, report to me, not that I may come and worship him, but really that I might come and murder him. That's what he wants to do. He's a, he's a maniac. He's a satanically inspired maniac. And no doubt he's inspired by Satan. No doubt he's inspired by the evil one. From Genesis 3 on, there's been a constant battle going on uh, to do away with the coming promised Messiah, the seed of the woman, the seed of David. Stop and ask yourself, who would want to murder the Savior? Who else would kill the Savior of the world? Who would try to murder the one who's been given to men out of God's tremendous love so that they might escape eternal judgment and coming wrath? Who would do that? The answer is simple. It's a short list. Only a fool or Satan himself, right? And this guy's satanically inspired. These wise men, they want to worship him. The Jewish leaders are indifferent to him. And Herod wants to murder him. Those are the basic three positions you get regarding this child. Verse 9, having heard the king, they went away and lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. So they leave the king's presence. They make their way to Bethlehem, the star that they'd seen in the east and they'd not seen for a while. Then all of a sudden it appears. Behold, the star appears again. Lo, the star which they had past hence seen in the east. Right? Uh, 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 Suddenly appears again. Uh, and again, it's, uh, it's something new. It's nothing, something that has not been seen by them. Saw, they saw it originally, but then they hadn't seen it for a while, and then it shows up here again and points them the direction they go. So again, it's not some kind of astral star. It's not some kind of uh, planet or whatever. It's the sign of the Son of the Man. It's the glory of the Lord. Again, seen at his birth, not seen since, and then all of a sudden it appears again and went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. So again, the glory of the Lord stands right over the place of the Christ, the child, so the Magi could discover the exact location where he was. Verse 10 says, When they saw the star, uh, they rejoiced greatly, with great, with exceedingly great joy. Uh, NIV says they were overjoyed. New English translation says they shouted joyfully. The Greek literally says they rejoiced with very great joy. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. You know why? Because they're, they're on track. They knew that, they, knew that they're, they were about to reach their destination. Their long travel, the journey was over. They found the person whom they were seeking. Guided by this visible manifestation of God's presence. Guided by the prophetic word through the prophet Micah. And then guided by the testimony of a faithful man in the history of their group of people, this godly man, Daniel. When they came to the house, verse 11... Again, this is sometime later, sometime after the birth of Christ. They're not at the manger uh, anymore with the shepherds. They're in a house. 
when they came to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. Now, that's important to notice that. You'll notice that every time that Mary and the infant are mentioned together, verse 11, 13, 14, 20, 21, the infant is always mentioned first because it's the little child upon whom the story is centered. Matthew is concerned about this little child who is the king, the rightful heir to the throne of David, the the Messiah of Israel. They came to the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down, listen, they fell down and worshiped him, not them, him. There's no worship of Mary going on here. And there's no worship of Mary going on here by these wise men. There's no hailing her as the queen of heaven. No one calling her the co-redeemer or co-redemptrix. There's no one declaring her to be the mother of God. They're not interested in her. They're interested in him. They came to the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshiped him, which again is reserved for God alone. Seeing the child, they fell down and worshiped. Again, they prostrated themselves. You'll notice in the context of the story, no one's yelling, get up, don't do that, because that action is only reserved for God. Nobody's saying that because it's God who they're worshiping. They worship God. They worship this little child in the truest sense of the word, right? They worshiped, indeed, the one who has been born king of the Jews, the one who is the Messiah of Israel, the one who is God in the flesh, the one whom uh, Wesley once wrote, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity. That's who they're worshiping. God, the Holy Spirit, has worked in the lives of these men. He's drawn them. He's directed them to the truth, to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they've come to worship the King, the King of the Jews. They've come to worship the Messiah, and now they come and offer him gifts. They came to the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshiped him. And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, a lot, as you would imagine, been made about the gifts by the commentators, many suggesting that they not only have a practical use, or practical value, but also maybe there's a symbolic value or symbolic use. Obviously, gold's a great, uh, valuable commodity. It's also been suggested that perhaps gold is the gift for a king. Uh, gold is often associated with kings. Therefore, some say that these guys giving the gift of gold acknowledges the kingship of the child. Frankincense, or pure incense, was obviously used many times in the Old Testament as a fragrance, sometimes just to make things smell better, to make things smell good, is often used in the connection to the worship of God. So those who see symbolic uh, uh, pictures or see symbolism here would say frankincense is the gift that acknowledges the deity of the child. Myrrh is basically a perfume that when you uh, put it on your bed or your clothing, it makes uh, things smell better, makes it smell good. It was mixed sometimes with uh, wine, as in Mark 15. Sometimes it was served uh, as a used as an anesthetic, is used in John 19 in the preparation of the body of Christ for burial. Myrrh is a perfume, an ointment, again, that makes things smell better in a day when there's not a whole lot of things that smell very good because we don't have deodorant, right? So these who would see these things symbolically say, well, myrrh is the gift for a mortal. Uh, again, uh, uh, for a mortal, uh, uh, just a gift to make things a little more pleasurable in life. Uh, again, a little less Otis uh, to make a burial a little less repulsive. So you have these gifts that are used, again, in a, a natural sense. Some suggest them symbolically. Gold says he's a king. Myrrh says he's the man destined for death. Frankincense says that he is a, he's a god. I don't know. If you want him to be symbolic, make him symbolic. I don't care. They must have some practical value. 
I think perhaps that's the issue here. The gifts are valuable. This family is very poor. They could use something to help sustain them. They could take these gifts and sell them and trade them for other commodities such as food, which might be useful. They're about to make a big trip. I don't know if you know that. They're going to have to escape to Egypt in order to save the child's life and to meet their needs and subsequent return to uh, Nazareth. Perhaps they might sell some of these things along the way. Verse 12 says, Having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. Now, obviously, these men have come to worship the king. Not knowing that Herod um, is, uh, is uh, uh, corrupt, that he's a maniac. So again, and until, uh, until they meet him, right? And then God intercedes, and God intercedes on their behalf. God intercedes on behalf of the child, and he warns them about this man. Don't go back to Herod. Herod has no intent whatsoever of coming to worship the child. He wants to see him dead. So the fact that God comes into contact with these men and, and uh, directs them with a dream obviously says that he is directly communicating to them. Again, he is directly communicating to them, and, and their role in the event was actually, actually, again, by divine design. They were sent to proclaim the truth about his son that the nation of Israel won't do itself. They won't proclaim the fact of who Jesus is. So again, these wise men from the east, they come up, they come from the east, they properly acknowledge that Jesus is the king of the Jews. They come to worship him because, again, he's worthy. He alone is worthy of worship. And then the fact that they depart to their own country another way means they have to travel a route uh, uh, to escape Herod's notice, which probably wasn't a very simple thing since they're a, a huge entourage. And so they've got to s- sneak out of town the back way. When they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child and destroy him. Now, in this next section, we could take a couple, two or three times to it, to be honest with you, but I'm just going to work my way through it real quickly. There's a lot of stuff in here. The coming of the Magi, just think about the parents, the coming of the Magi and everything that they'd seen, everything they heard, must have been a tremendous encouragement to Joseph and Mary, right? But that joy is short-lived. God warns the Magi in a dream that they need to go back a different way, and God warns them through a dream that they need to flee to protect the life of the child. Herod's insane hatred of the child is out-of-control rage and, and makes the point that Herod, listen, his out-of-control rage really makes the point that he recognizes that Jesus is the king, right? Every bit as much as the Magi. Again, he's the one who says the Christ. He gets it. It's not like he doesn't understand. He understands very well. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He's here, and Herod, again, wants him dead. But God providentially steps in. Again, God's not a passive spectator in the events of life on the earth. He's moving, directing, guiding the affairs of men through history so that his purposes might be filled, uh, fulfilled because he's the one who's working all things out according to the counsel of his will. Verse 14, and he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. The word departed there literally means to run away, to flee from great danger at a distance. Now at this time, uh, Egypt was a safe place, a safe haven for individuals, Jewish individuals who are in imminent danger, so they'd often flee there. Verse 15 says, And was there until the death of Herod, that what was spoken of by the Lord uh, through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Out of Egypt I did call my son. Now, we don't have time to go into all this, but the fact that Matthew points to the prophecy being fulfilled in the calling of Jesus out of Egypt is another uh, Old Testament, or as another Old Testament revelation 
again, just like Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, it's one of the ways, it's a fascinating passage. Because if you go back and you look, there's all these places, physical names of places. And all these physical names of places are places in the Old Testament that said the Messiah would be involved with these physical names and places. What does that tell you? It tells you that this one is the real Messiah. He's got to be identified historically with all these places, and that's why he's saying this, that out of Egypt I did call my son. Right? So it's, a more, no, it's more evidence that points that Jesus is God's son. He's the predicted Messiah, not a counterfeit. There were counterfeits in the day uh, that Jesus was on the earth, false messiahs, just like they were in our day. Verse 16 says, When Herod saw that he'd been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all of its environs from two years old and under, according to the time which he ascertained from the Magi. So again, the maniacal Herod, when he realizes that the men are not coming back with the information that he wants from them, literally, he goes completely out of his mind, completely out of control. He is filled with wrath. He is blinded by anger and rage. And he commits one of the most brutal and cruelest acts of his career by slaughtering all the male children. So he sends his shoulders... uh, uh, soldiers who go from house to house to rip these babies out of their mother's arms and to put them to death before their very eyes in, attempt, in an attempt to execute the real king of Israel in an attempt to murder the Christ. Obviously, again, satanically inspired, brutal, ruthless, I mean, wicked, terrifying action. Not completely surprising given the character of this guy who had a long history of murdering anyone and everyone who ever got in his, his way, including his own wife and children. And again, no doubt the event is satanically inspired, not just because of the level of brutality, but again, the one who would murder mankind's only hope of escaping God's anger towards sin has to be satanically inspired because Jesus Christ is mankind's only hope, right? It has to be. So the murder of all these uh, children is really just the beginning of sorrows for the nation. Remember at the crucifixion uh, when they're trying to decide uh, who should I... Pilate wants to know, who shall I set free, Jesus or Barabbas? And they say, Barabbas. And then they say, let you know, his blood be upon us. And this is just the first part of a whole long line of suffering the nation of Israel is going to go through by the, because of the rejection of her king. Now, it's interesting here, the Bible critics come along and say, well, you know what, let me tell you what, let me set you straight. None of this ever happened. This didn't happen. Why? Well, because Josephus didn't record it. So there you go. All right, Josephus didn't record it, didn't happen. That's what the liberals say. Right? Well, I don't know about the liberals. I, I don't I know for certain that it happened. You go, well, how do you know that? I just read it out of the text, didn't I? That's how I know for certain it happened. I don't need some liberal Bible critic to tell me something didn't happen when the Bible tells me it happened. I don't need secular writers to confirm or deny what God says happened. I just believe what God says, right? Now, what's part of may add to the confusion to this whole thing on the slaughter of the, the babies is the Roman Catholic Church, of course, has turned it into the slaughter of the innocents. They would suggest that perhaps hundreds and thousands of infants were murdered by Herod at this time. And I don't want to downplay the horror, the heartbreak of the event. Obviously, it's a realistic uh, event in life of a family to get their young son murdered. But probably a more realistic number of the male children two years and under in this small village in this surrounding area is probably somewhere around 50, not hundreds of thousands. It's probably about 50, which would make it very plausible for why Josephus doesn't record it uh, and misses it all together because he's got so much stuff going on and so many different things to write down, the aggravated cruelties of this maniac uh, Herod as he's closing out his life. Probably just didn't notice it. 
Obviously, I'm not trying to downplay it. It's, it's horrendous. But that's probably why Joseph doesn't, uh, or Josephus doesn't uh, record it. Verse 17 says, Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying a voice was heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to comfort, to be comforted because they are no more. Now notice very carefully what verse 17 doesn't say. Look at it real carefully. It does not say in order that. It does not say in order that which was spoken by the Lord might be fulfilled. It just simply says, then that, which was spoken through Jeremiah. What does that mean? Well, Matthew is trying to make sure that we understand that the murder of these children is not so that God's word could be fulfilled, as if God is causing the event. It's not because his word is being fulfilled. He's not the author of evil. He's just certainly allowing the event to happen. Obviously, we understand that. But he's not the causative factor. He knows it was going to happen, but the causative factor, the guilt belongs to the person of Herod. He's the one who instituted the murder. Herod's the one who bears personal responsibility. Herod's the one who's going to be held and judged accordingly for his wickedness and his sin. Verse 19 says, When Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life were dead. When Herod was dead. So most likely, uh, Joseph and his family have not been in Egypt very long before Herod dies. Now, Josephus, again, the historian, gives great details um, relating to the events that transpired during the king's final illnesses. We don't know exactly what the medical diagnosis uh, uh, would be. Uh, if you have some ideas what you might think, I'll just give you the symptoms that Josephus uh, says happened to this uh, man Herod. Here, here are the symptoms. Ulcerated entrails, putrefying and maggot-infested private parts, an unbearably foul stench from his breath, constant convulsions and prolonged useless attempts at a cure, none of which the physicians nor warm baths would lead to recovery. If you got some ideas of what his situation might have been, uh, it's probably too late to tell him, right? But probably a fitting in for a man who's so cruel, so wicked, such a murderous history, who not only five days before his own death murders his son, he leaves again upon his death orders to... Uh, have the principled men of the entire nation rounded up, falsely imprisoned upon his death, slaughtered, so there would be mourning. Again, absolutely satanically wicked individual, all the way to the bitter end. And just in case you're wondering, the massacre didn't happen. His uh, men didn't carry it out. When Herod died, his son Archelaus sees that Herod has a tremendous funeral, wraps his corpse in purple, puts gold crown on his head, gold scepter in his hand and lays him in a gold casket with uh, precious stones, 500 slaves leading the processional. Verse 21, And he arose, took the child and his mother, and came to the land of Israel. But when Herod, he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in a place, in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Archelaus is another wicked individual. Herod the Great dies, kingdom is divided uh, between Herod's sons, Archelaus stays there in the central part. A man named Antipodus takes the northern area of Galilee. Archelaus goes over uh, Judah. Another son, Philip, uh, takes the region way out north and east beyond the Jordan. 
See all these brothers all over the place. Uh, but while Herod was still alive, Archelaus had gained a great reputation. Uh, he was very much and every bit as cruel as his father. He was a bad king. He doesn't last very long upon the throne. He begins his rule, Archelaus does, by the deliberate slaughter of 3,000 Jews in response to a rebellion that broke out just after the Passover when two influential, famous Jewish uh, teachers were murdered. So even after Joseph makes his way to Galilee, Archelaus continues to be a cruel king, so much so that Archelaus is deposed in his ninth year of his reign by the Romans, and in his place, Rome appoints a governor, a man who's known as, can you guess? Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate. He's the one who sentences Jesus to be crucified. Verse 22 says, and again, or continuing, it says, and being warned by God in a dream, he departed for the region of Galilee. He came and resided in the city called Nazareth, that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now let me tell you what, that's interesting, that phrase, he should be called a Nazarene. You know why? Because it doesn't appear anywhere in the Old Testament. Now the text just says the prophet said the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. But there's no prophet singular, let alone prophets plural, that said these words in the Old Testament. So what does that mean? So again, Matthew is an inspired writer. He's writing in the direction of the Holy Spirit, the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And he said the prophet said it. Not one prophet, but the prophets said it. So what's happening here? Well, let me tell you, Nazareth is a small town. It's about 25 miles north of Jerusalem, and it was a place that was known to be rude, a violent place, a crude place where uneducated people lived, a place where godly people like Nathaniel, remember, wondered out of John 1:46, could anything good ever come out of that city? A place that was despised so much that Nazareth or a Nazarene became a synonym for someone who was despised. The Old Testament predicted that when Messiah would come, he would be despised and rejected of men. Isaiah 53.3, he was despised, forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face, despised, and we did not esteem him. You see the same thing in Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Isaiah 49. They all say the same thing. It's interesting also in the Talmud, which is the Jewish rabbinical writings, they called Jesus the Nazarene. They never call him the Bethlehemite because he was, he was born there. They call him the Nazarene. Why? Because that word Nazarene is a derisive term. One commentator says this, Jerome reports a synagogue prayer in which Christians are cursed as Nazarenes. They say, may, the, may they be blotted out of the book of life and not be written uh, with the just there, right? So it's a term of derision. Jesus was so despised, so rejected, they gave him this title, just like God predicted, right? Very early on in his infancy, the Jesus, the Nazarene. And what a sad commentary, right? What a sad commentary on the greatest event of all human history, the incarnation of God, the one whom God sent into the world out of his tremendous love, his great mercy to redeem men. Hated by many, rejected by most, only embraced by those who see their sin and their need of a Savior and know that he is the only Savior of the world. Our Father and our God, we thank you for an opportunity that we've taken over these few weeks to do this study, to look again at just a chronological look at the incarnation of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We stand amazed at your mercy, at your kindness, at your love for us as fallen men and women. Just thank you. We praise you. We love you. We adore you. We're so thankful that you've given us the privilege of gathering together that we might be... uh, 
blessed and a blessing to each other. Protect us. Keep our minds focused on the things above where you dwell, not on the things of the earth. Help us to be lights in a very dark world. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.